This has been quite the momentous week in British politics, as Rishi Sunak has become the new Prime Minister. Long-time listeners will remember that we interviewed Rishi Sunak at the start of the year. It was a watershed moment for the podcast, which took us up a few leagues and made a lot more people aware of us. It was one of the most revealing interviews that he has ever done. We talked about mental health, the challenge of being a new parent, how he is no longer a dog sceptic, and what he thinks the future of our economy looks like. I'll be writing a bit more on what I think a Rishi Sunak government will look like, and how it will operate over on my notebook, which is a weekly email I write on the most interesting things I have seen on the future of work, technology and politics. Just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co and you can sign up to the notebook there and you'll also be able to see some of the best clips of the Rishi Sunak interview. Today we are bringing you another stellar guest. We interviewed Baroness Martha Lane Fox. If I were to read you out Martha's entire biography, we would take up the entire 40 minutes of this interview. To give a short history though, she co-founded lastminute.com alongside Brent Hoveman and former Jimmy's Jobs guest Peter Flint. She was interviewed for Desert Island Discs at the age of just 30. Something which interestingly she says in this interview she slightly regrets. She is now on the board of Twitter, Chanel, Chancellor of the Open University and has just been appointed President of the British Chambers of Commerce. Big thanks to Catherine Parsons of Decoded who introduced me to Martha. As you'll hear, Martha has a sore throat, but as ever she was determined to push through. I'm going to need one very large brush to sweep up all the name dropping that has gone on in this introduction. But there are very few people who have had such an impact on the British entrepreneur ecosystem in the 21st century. I really hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did recording it. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners. And I wanted to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now, on to today's episode. Martha, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Hello, nice to see you. So you've just been announced as the president of the British Chambers of Commerce. What made you decide to take that role? Well, I have a slightly countercultural view compared to most of the world of people in technology that you're small and medium-sized is pretty great. You know, we always talk about scaling frenziedly in the technology sector and even was blitz scaling, which is a word I really object to. But the amazing patchwork of businesses in this country that actually, as everyone knows, make up the lifeblood of how we trade are extraordinary and there are so many thousands of interesting organizations that are members of the British Chambers of Commerce so I want to try and use my voice where I can to help raise up their voices 
it's also, I have to be honest, the perfect job because I don't have to have any executive responsibilities, which I increasingly realise I'm terrible at. <laughs> and and what more does British business need to be doing to uh, raise its voice? What should it be talking about? Well, you know, I, I'm new to the job and they have got their own agenda, which I'm sure I'll learn more about in the next few weeks. But, you know, I think that we still have a way to go in this country and the digitization of our small businesses you know, it's a huge challenge if you're running a small trading company of any description or an offline, probably offline business, a shop, a hairdressing, instead of hairdressing salons, whatever it might be, to deploy technology effectively. And yet we know that it's not optional. That's the way that you're going to increasingly be doing and running your business. I think that's a huge plank of what British business needs to focus on. That's the kind of micro-operational level. I think the macro level, clearly post-Brexit, facing into very complicated economic time, we need to make sure that we're giving small businesses all the tools we can to have maximum chance of success. Some of those will be kind of specific policy suggestions, but some of it is just about raising the voice of the businesses themselves just to showcase the incredible talent that we have across the country, help do trading between each other and with other countries, and make sure that we really have got the kind of fundamentals in order to keep making as many businesses as successful as possible in what is going to be a very difficult couple of years, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's going to be very challenging for for a lot of people, and COVID as well has also been a um, a challenge as well. I wanted to talk to you about the kind of story of LastMinute.com. I know it's something you've talked about many times, with it being over twenty five years now since it was it was founded. But there was one particular nugget when Brent Hobman first proposed the idea to you. You didn't actually think it was a particularly good one. <laughs> Do you know what? I know he tells this the story and I can't remember. It's interesting when you went my co-founder, Brent, who's brilliant and probably single-handedly changed the landscape of entrepreneurship in this country. He tells a story that I was rather dismissive of the idea. I think what I remember is that Brent had invented LastMinute.com, like all great new products and services based on a deep need of his own. He would spend... Um, time late in a Friday night in his office, calling 55 different hotels, 45 different restaurants, trying to work out his social life for the weekend. It was an effing nightmare for Brent. So that's why he was so compelled by the notion of what the internet could do to make his life easier. And I think maybe I didn't feel in quite the same social space as Brent. I wasn't going to such glitzy hotels and having such a ritzy time. So maybe that was why I was a bit more dismissive. No, as I remember it, I remember just as always thinking, wow, he's really seen something incredible with the, the dawn of this new technology. And one of the things you were in charge of there was um, hiring and it scaled to over a thousand people at, at one stage. How do you think hiring has changed in the last two decades? What are the biggest changes you've seen? I think there's probably three planks I talk about. The first is a much more conscious awareness of diversity, you know, choosing those lang- that language carefully because I think we still have a long way to go in achieving actual diversity. But I think, you know, it wasn't really even a conversation when we were starting lastminute.com. I attracted attention because I was a young female founder and it was sort of unusual. When I think about the intent with which we hired, obviously, again, being a young woman, I recruited like myself to a degree. So probably we did have a more gender balanced tech startup than many others, but it wasn't intentional. And I think now no company can really get away with not having some kind of plan process, look at data, 
um, measurement around what their diversity is. And that is a big change because it changes how you think about what networks you go into to recruit, how you are um, writing your job specs through to how you're appraising people. And that's a good thing. But as I said, I think we're really still only at the beginning of that journey. How did you recruit at lastminute.com in those early years? Because that's one of the things now is those networks you talk about, there are so many more networks. In a way, it makes it easier, but also more time consuming to hire as well. When you're a startup, especially at that moment, which seems strange now to remember, but no one thought it would work. I mean, no one. No one thought that anybody was going to buy anything on the internet. Lastminute.com was sort of secondary. When we were explaining the idea to people, I think that people really completely baffled by was the security about people's credit cards. How was the transaction going to work? You know, and I know we still have cybersecurity issues, but a completely different set of circumstances. So the first thing we had to do was just recruit from people we knew. My brother was the first employee, a friend that Brenton were with, brilliant young guy, Pete Flint, who's now a very successful entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. And so you get, you know, you go through your friends and family. That's the starting point. And then that network grows. And then as you become more credible, you raise money, you can be a bit more formal. And we tried to recruit very carefully from the travel industry, tried to obviously recruit people with deep technical expertise. So, you know, there's quite a difference between that first startup phase to then how it, how it scales. And, you know, I think that that's something to go back to your first question about how it's changed. You know, one is the diversity point, but secondarily, it is just that underpinning of technology, you know. I think I read somewhere that 95% of jobs are only advertised online right now. Only, right? So that is such a huge shift. You know, if you want to be getting a job, you have to be using the internet. And I, as you know, that's something I've done a lot of work on over the last decade. And it pains me that, you know, the million people that aren't in work, they can't use the internet. You're kind of stuffed. You're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. One of the things that stood out for last minute was the kind of incredible PR machine and branding. We were talking about just beforehand about how you took some of the first advertising spaces on London buses and so on. What's different now in in terms of it? Because branding, communication is still as important as ever. But what are the big differences now? Because again, back then there were a lot fewer channels that you would need to market in necessarily. Yes. I mean, it's kind of, unbelievably more complicated now but also somehow there's a way more opportunity you know i think that if your product as lastminute.com did lends itself to kind of editorial i guess if people wrote about our flights that were 99 pounds to new york i could have kissed haldor haldorson from iceland air gave us the ticket price of 99 pounds to new york because that became a story and it wrote itself right people wanted to write about the fact that you could get to new york for 99 pounds so the 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 work was done by the product itself coupled with as you say some kind of clever pieces of of branding and in some ways you know the world has moved more rapidly in that direction so you clearly you have to sort of editorialize your business in a way to be able to produce those content nuggets you have to make the story around it not just about the brand or the name and i would say that that's probably been true through time it's just the mechanisms you use to deliver it and the sophistication with which you have to you know, manage different channels has, has increased rapidly. But in the end, people buy products from stories. That's what I really believe. You know, clearly that's Steve Jobs' great insight as well. You know, those famous Apple ads who didn't even mention a computer. Yeah. And if you can storify, to use a horrible verb, your product, put it on a bus, put it on Twitter, it doesn't matter. The point is that you have found that connection that you can make with your, your end user. 
one of the most striking points of the last minute story is like any good story it wasn't just positive all the way through you ipo'd and i think the price almost touched 550 at one point and then it dropped all the way to to 20p and 19p (laughs) i know that very well because this was a different time wasn't it we'll be able to get away with this now i remember saying don't worry guys i'm so confident that we're reaching the floor if it gets below 15p i'm going to run naked around the office thinking there's no way this is going to happen. And it got closer and closer. I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? What is it I'm going to do? <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine that. But put even more pressure on yourself, Ruga. Um, But what, what, what advice or sort of readings do you have for, you know, there's been some big floats in the London Stock Exchange over the last few years of London tech companies, Deliveroo, THG, um, wise, you know, all coming up with problems now. And what's your advice in terms of to those founders um, as somebody who's been there before with it? I wish I had some magic uh, special formula, I could say, but I think it's pretty simple, actually. I mean, I personally believe that it's incredibly important as the founder, as the leader, that you are living as much as you are asking your employees to live. And by that, I mean doing the hard work as well not becoming too remote, feeling like you are fighting alongside them to get through whatever the crisis is, whether it's a collapse in the share price, whether it's some disaster with the supplier, whether it's some screw up with the technology. And I think that um, that's the amazing thing about being a founder is that you, you know, sometimes you need to detach more, I guess, but that you inherently care so deeply about what you're building that you want to stay on it and you want to do the hard work, but that's phenomenally important. And I do think that is motivating and inspiring to the people around you. People want to be around people that they can see, have a real belief in what they're doing and are alongside them in fighting for it. So I think that's the, the first thing I'd say. I mean, I think the second thing is, again, some platitudinous, but in my opinion, experience, very few people get it consistently right. And that is just communicating all the time over communicating one of the things i really feel i've learned again and again is that you think you've said something and people have understood it they haven't even begun to and you have to say things hundreds of times and they may then eventually get the point you're making and it really is important when things are going badly to keep communicating to keep explaining what's happening to try and be as truthful as possible to at least tilt towards the truth and to be clear when you can't be um, you know, I'm on the board of Twitter. I'm having a pretty rough time in the minute. It's, it's been well documented. It's hard internally in the business and the communication is essential. So just keep communicating. And what else can be done in terms of you've been doing a lot of work with the House of Lords into the post-COVID inquiry? What can be done, founders and just leaders more generally? There's the communication side, but keeping that work culture going in a time via Zoom, etc., can be a challenge. What are your other tips for kind of keeping that positive culture? I was chairing a committee looking at the long-term implications of COVID and you're quite right. I mean, some of the strands that you're interested in just are so important in this shift um, how we think about the future, how people are working, where they're working and then the kind of underpinning of digitisation across the board. And I think that it is a very, very different world. You know, I think about how many people have started work during this crazy time. They've never been in an office, don't know about that kind of way that you manoeuvre around people, how you build those networks. And I've got mixed feelings about it. You know, I think that the ideal is this hybrid world where you can give people the flexibility. They can be at home and avoid a commute or be at home and you know, have caring responsibilities or however they want to run their world. But at the same time, I do think it's very, very important to come together at 
certain moments to be able to build team dynamic face to face it is just very different so i think for me it is about finding out where those those right balances are not demanding you have to be in the office five days a week that feels old-fashioned but at the same time recognizing that you're not going to do as good a work you're not going to be able to build as robust a culture i don't believe if you are face to face on occasions Unless, of course, you're a company that never comes together and you started from a different place completely, which I know some tech companies have done, and they've always just built a remote culture. That That's different, I think. I think if you're kind of manoeuvring between the two, you have to be quite careful and, again, quite intentful about how you decide you're going to bring people together and make sure that when you do come together, you're not just all sitting on computers, but you are actually working and learning and understanding each other. And being creative, yeah. And one of the things that you... One of the plethora of things you do, Chancellor of the Open University, somewhere that perhaps was remote hybrid before it was even fashionable. It's, but it's it had been interesting doing the research this. I hadn't appreciated that it's the sort of largest university in, in the UK, 180,000 people studying at one time. It's pretty um, yeah. pretty extraordinary. Do you think that the world of education is is going to have a dramatic change which will benefit places like the Open University? I mean, the university started in 1969, right? So it's the OG of digital learning, really. It um, it was invented by an extraordinary um, set of Labour ministers at the time, and Harold Wilson gave it his full support. They called it the University of the Air because it was based on remote learning. Anybody could go to it, anybody from any background. You didn't have to have a particular set of results from any particular school or anything like that. So it really was trying to open up um, education. And I think... It's an extraordinary testament to the organisation that 50 years later, it's 52 now, I think. Um, it's as strong as ever. And all of the trends that you know well are tilting towards the OU, right? More constant learning. You know, the OU's motto is to learn to live. And that absolutely sums it up. You know, most of the people at the OU are studying, 63% of them, I think it is, are in full-time work. And they're doing this on the side. It might be social worker trying to get to a different level of social work, or it might be a environmentalist and trying to get a marine biology degree, whatever it might be. And I think that is the way the world is going to these chunks of learning that you'll have throughout your life, maybe sometimes just for yourself, but often to help in your career or professional life. And in addition to that, as you say, the underpinning of technology, it feels as though the only reason a real sweet spot for the way the world has moved. How do you keep yourself learning and developing? I mean, you know, I feel like I really know nothing. I just constantly feel as though I'm on the back foot and, and the world is endlessly um, confusing and alarming and exciting and interesting. I think, you know, I'm extremely lucky that I don't have a proper kind of normal job. I do these mixture of things. So you are inherently always learning because you're moving between private sector and the policy world, the public sector, philanthropy sometimes, and then sort of funny spaces in between. So just that in itself keeps you on your toes because you have to be trying to pull the threads between things that don't have an expertise like an organization that I'm working in every single day so that I think is probably the first thing just doing so many things I think the second thing is I hope I'm sure I don't get it totally right being open to it you're being self-aware about needing to learn I read a lot I read a lot full stop I read novels and I read old fiction but I also read lots of newsletters about the industries I'm interested in, the sectors I work in, that just keeps you kind of fresh and keeps your opinions forming. And I hope the other thing is listening, really trying to have being 
joy of learning from the people that you work with by listening to them and um, spending time with them, you know, from diversions from the board of Chanel and the incredible things they're doing around sustainability through to, you know, my colleagues in that, so in the committee who are an incredible range of political experience. So if you're open to it and self-aware about it, it comes to you more easily. So do you think the future is more generalist or specialist then? <laughs> Very good question. You know, I, again, confessional time, I um, used to feel very insecure and anxious about not being an expert. You know, and I hated that question. So what do you do now? You know, people know that last minute. What do you know? And I'd sound like a complete twat, however I expressed it, because if I do all these different things and I would really not know how to make them into an interesting package with a bow on the top. And I sort of envied people who said, well, I'm really interested in blah, I'm very good at X. But then increasingly, I think that, you know, if that's what your brain is like, or that's how your life has ended up, it's, it could be a superpower to channel that generalisation because, as I say, you have the joy of seeing things in one organisation and trying to think about whether they're relevant to another organisation or like pulling those, finding those um, themes across things, which can be immensely rewarding and can help the organisations themselves. So I think the world belongs to both without judging your question. You know, I do believe in experts. You know, I think experts are fundamental. I think that, you know, we've seen over the last three years, particularly the importance of science, the importance of people who really understand what the hell is going on. And uh, so I don't think you can make a choice. But for me personally, I think if you tend towards being a generalist, whereas it used to make me nervous, it can actually be a strength. Yeah. And how did you go about when you moved on from lastminute.com? How how did you kind of think I'm going to have a second act, etc.? What was the way you approached that? Well, I was it was interrupted. You know, the reason my life fell out the way it did is because I had a catastrophic car accident. I spent 2 years in hospital and I had to rebuild my whole entire life. So I'd left lastminute.com imagining I was going to go off and do another full-time job, but it did not turn out that way. And so actually it was less leaving com that was the prompt. It was more having to completely rethink how my life was going to be around a whole different set of challenges to the ones that I'd imagined. And that was really what both facilitated and um, made necessary this kind of weird portfolio life. You know, at portfolio life age 35, and I thought it wasn't going to happen until I was 75. So that, that was you know challenging in some ways, but, you know, I'm very, very lucky in others. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine the kind of, mental processes that you have to go through not only you know just on so many levels with with something like that yeah i mean it's it's hard to unpick because it's so profound and so daily you know i've just spent nearly a year fighting really complicated hip problems and a bone infection and so it doesn't really ever end it's just something you have to sort of re-orchestrate your world around and for me personally i think that denial is a new well, the underrated emotion, but that's not very fashionable, especially if you're deep into therapy circles. But actually, for me, what's helped and enabled my life is okay, that happened to me. You know, I could lie in bed worrying about the pain, worrying about all the other things that go wrong with my body every day, or I could just pretend it didn't happen and try and do the best I can, which won't be as good as some other people at some things, might be good at other things, and just carry on. And that's how I cho- have chosen to choose to continue to operate but it's a choice and sometimes it can be hard work and I think you just have to find what works for you I often get asked to talk about resilience and wellness, particularly over the pandemic it became very trendy everybody was had resilience coming out of their ears but I think for me actually in some ways it's no more complicated than just carrying on 
you know, that's what it is, just choosing to carry on, even when you really don't want to or can't face it. And that's, that's I think, a daily choice. But it's a fine line, isn't it? Because the, like you say, one of the things that gets trumpeted that founders need more than anything is resilience. And actually, the line between resilience and denial is, yes. is yeah, is, is. Just articulated your back on. Um, but I think, you know, den- denial is different again to lack of self awareness. And I go back to that too, right? So I think you've got to try and couple them together. You know, in my opinion, you do sometimes meet founders who are just living in a complete cow cuckoo land. They can't see what's actually going on around them. You know, you can have a healthy amount of denial if you're a founder, for example. People tell you your idea won't work. You just carry on. You know, it's, you know there's something bad. But when it comes completely and totally ridiculous lack of self-awareness or just not being rooted in reality, that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah, I think... Um, recognizing what's going on and either choosing to ignore it or not that's different to becoming completely fantasist (laughs) yeah totally are you a proponent of kind of business coaches for founders and that type of thing i mean i i i don't know i would ever want to criticize if that what's works for people fantastic get all the help you can you know i personally have never had a business coach i've been incredibly lucky that i've worked with amazing co-founders always worked with fantastic teams that's where i've had a lot of my own kind of feedback and hopefully help get better at things if it works for you fantastic i mean i do think however that if you are choosing to be particularly on a founding journey you're starting something no one else is going to be able to do that for you right that is a particular kind of journey it's hard it's lonely even in a partnership it's lonely because it's just unlike anything else you'll have more responsibility more fear more joy sometimes too but it's different. And I think the idea that you can put a business coach that into success, I, that doesn't resonate with me. I think you have to recognize that there is always going to be an element that you just have to do yourself and take the knocks and take the breaks. I totally agreed. Um, one of the things listening to your um, Desert Island Discs earlier. Oh, my God. <laughs> Desert Island Discs. Never, ever say yes to Desert Island Discs when you're 30. I mean, for God's sake. I sometimes have panic attacks that the music I chose I'm actually going to be on a desert island with. Oh, anyway. Well, don't, don't worry, I'm not about to quiz you on your music tastes. But still, it's a very strange and arrogant thing to say yes to at 30. But yeah, anyway, the question. They'll have, they'll have to get you back on at some stage, undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, one of the sort of predictions that you talk about was like the increase of leisure time that people were going to have. And that's definitely yeah. something that's that's happened. And taking the threads of that generalist question, what are your sort of predictions or what are, rather than predictions, what are you seeing that's happening across sectors? You know, what are your broad predictions for the future of the way that things will, the way that our economy is changing? Well, I think that sadly, probably the most profound and important one is just a complete inequity. You know, mm-hmm. you and I are sitting here working at home, probably able to manage a complex set of interesting work things we're doing I've got five or six different jobs. You've probably got a couple of jobs. You're starting a podcast. We are living in this rarefied, not rarefied, significant portion of people world, but still not the entire world. And I think that the kind of dislocation between people who are working six or seven jobs and not actually managing to make enough money mm. and have a family and are, you know, having a complexity of uh, other issues in their lives is going to grow and we will all, you know, separate kind of cohort of people have a different take on work and life. And I think that is 
unbelievably upsetting and depressing. And if I think back to the early days of technology, that was something I think naively we thought might help. We thought, yeah. you know, it's going to be kind of because young people like me are going to start a business and have all these people doing their own thing. And it hasn't turned out like that, has it? I'm not blaming technology. In some ways it's helped, you know, it's helped with platforms that people can get short-term work or whatever off. But at the same time, there's absolutely no doubt that with the rise of technology, there's been this shift in economic power and that that's upsetting and depressing. So that would be my starting point. I think then beyond that, you know, again, I don't want to sound like a kind of totally crap record, but we haven't even seen the start of the digitization of our economy. Not even seen the start of it, right? The easy stuff's happened, right? The things that could easily get digitized have got digitized, but everything that can be will be. And I often think about, I can't remember whose quote this is, but somebody smarter than me said, you know, today is the slowest day of the rest of your life. Everything is speeding up so much. It's going to get faster and faster, more complicated, more information, more data, more choices, all those things. And organizations that don't embrace that and embrace it very deeply are going to get left behind. And that be true at an individual level and, you know, national level and at a kind of corporate level. So I think those would be the two big things I'd, I'd come to. Uh, I, I agree that I think there's a real challenge around the sort of the the wealthy, and that's not even like financial wealth, the wealth no. of like uh, of skills and such. Like you're able to process the information a lot more. I often used to talk about the example of number ten, actually, of like an Oxford don, and you know a, a kid in India may have the same access to information now, but they know how to use the information so much more differently that actually it kind of extrapolates even further out, leading to kind of greater inequality of outcomes. And that's a, that's a real kind of strange juxtaposition that we kind of live in at the moment, like where things are more equal, they should be more democratic and so on, but, it's, but it actually doesn't end up resulting in that. It's a real challenge for policymakers how to sort that out. Yeah, I agree, but they need to. And it's the heart of the agenda, and it can't just be a, another slogan of leveling up or whatever. Whatever. This is, I think, this will be the difference between success and failure in countries over a long, long time. You know, if you look over a ten or twenty year period. Yeah. Yeah. No, I um, I agree. I mean, what would, what would your top advice? You've been an advisor to government before, and so what would your top piece of advice be that you'd want governments to do? I do so deeply think that we have not become a modern economy. I think we've kind of kidded ourselves about how we've embedded the internet in this country. And there's just no question in my mind that we're not going to achieve all the things we want to achieve unless we have everybody with good quality access, every person with a deeper understanding of the digital world, therefore able to deploy it in whatever work they're using. And an enormous reimagining of our sometimes very impressive institutions with a digital bent so the things the questions i always asking of things are are we solving the right problems have we got the right people in the room solving those problems is a broad enough basis people not just people that all look like me like each other and are we using the tools of the modern age and those are the things that i think i would if i was prime minister heaven help us but those are the questions that i would be asking constantly one of the things i think is really interesting about we talk about kind of knowledge and accessibility to it is one of the most amazing tools on the internet is actually twitter where you're a non-exec director um but i can also attest to spending too much time on the app as well and i just wondered what your um yeah what your tips were for harnessing the power of it and getting the most out of it 
I mean, I think it depends what they're trying to do, right? I think um, the reason I first got on Twitter in 2009 was when Gordon Brown asked me to be digital champion and look at all the people who weren't able to use the internet. I thought, I don't know anything about this area. I know a lot, quite a lot about the internet, but I don't know about the vulnerable communities and other people doing work in this area. So I used Twitter to find them. There's loads of amazing community groups and a huge, big kind of rich community of people thinking about the, the questions. And so that was absolutely invaluable. And then because I thought, well, I'm doing a kind of public in quotation marks facing job, I should be telling people, I should be working in the open and telling people what I'm doing. And that was how I kind of built it up. So it was quite a specific work function for me. And I think thinking about what that use case is for you, for one, when you're using it is helpful. You know, I, I love Twitter and now I don't have that kind of role. I use it a lot for news and also just for fun. So I think it's just deciding how you, what it is you're trying to get out of it and being quite laser sharp focused about it. There's lots of tools on Twitter that you can get better data about the different services that you might be using or your own service, your brand and so on. So investigating the tools as well can be helpful. And if you really are spending too much time on it, don't put the notifications on. Don't take your phone into your bedroom. That's my top tips. <laughs> and who are the, who, who would you say that some of the most interesting people to kind of follow on it that people might not have come across because it's it's i've had to sort of retrain my algorithms away from kind of politics and politicians the whole time because obviously that was when i started using the app that was kind of what i was using it for now it's more kind of entrepreneurship business leaders um and it, it does take a time for that to evolve slightly who are the most interesting people there used to be this great friday follow sort of uh thing that used to take place i mean i like following lots of people in the u.s um so for example a quite interesting guy who's like on the official title is he's called Vala Afsar and he is I think he works partly with Salesforce he's always got kind of interesting take on tech and work and society I love I, you know as I said I read a lot so I follow lots of writers I love following Margaret Atwood I love following other people that I you know enjoy reading their actual books and one of the most amazing things to me is I read something and I go on to see if I can find the author and then you can tweet that thank you for writing this book. And then you can make friends with them online. And so I've had so much joy. You know, recently read a book called Free about Albania by an amazing young woman, called, young middle-aged woman now called Leah Hippie, who um, escaped from Albania and now studying in London and teaching in London. And I just tweeted about her book and then we had a nice interchange. And those are the moments that I find really fantastic. It's like you've got this kind of other space, not people that you've actually physically met, but people that, you've had a connection with and you can hat tip them if you like. Yeah. So I find, I find writers, I look for entrepreneurs like you. Um, I do probably follow too many politicians and politics just because I think it's interesting to see how they are communicating and using the platform. I find that kind of fascinating. Um, but the, the best thing to do, if you, it's quite interesting to go through other people's followers. So if you, you know, like what you see or you like my tweets or your tweets, go to me or you and see who we're following. And that's quite a smart way of finding some of the interesting people of doing it yeah and, and what what politicians have you seen use it it well or, or what is the way because it, it is something where politicians are having to really think about how they communicate so many more channels for them to do it in now but twitter is definitely the place where politicians and a lot of the news happens what are your thoughts on that you know twitter is small right i mean compared to facebook or any other pretty much any other platform, YouTube, anything, it's tiny. Even getting to tiny TikTok, dare I say it. But because of having pretty much every journalist and every politician in the world on it, it's this disproportionate um, position in the ecosystem. 
And then obviously we, all the other, all the world media picks up tweets and comments and uses it to make headlines. So it's got this incredibly strong position in that ecosystem. And I think, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary thing for politicians, both scarily and and impressively. So, you know, I always think the way AOC has commanded social media is completely fantastic. You know, she's a different generation to me again, younger. She's not afraid to be completely herself. She can use it for fun. She can use it for serious things. She's a strong voice, campaigning voice. You may not agree with her politics, but you have to be impressed with how she's built her personal brand using social media and Twitter particularly. So I think she's a really phenomenal example. Um, and I think that um, I'm trying to think of a flip side to that. You know, I also find it somewhat alarming that we've got a lot of people who are using it to build much more pernicious and unpleasant narratives and rhetoric, not I mean, on the borderline of um, acceptable. And I think, you know, the difference between how Europe and the US sees free speech and how we allow people to use platforms, but... It's still interesting to see, you know, if you think about how Steve Bannon built his own personal brand using social networks. So everything happens. Just need to just find it and see what appeals to you. Take some tips from the, the political pros. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it is amazing to kind of see it. I was reading the other day about how Donald Trump couldn't have become president without Twitter and without getting that side of things. And it's, it's no, just... but it's, you're right. But sorry to interrupt you, but. You know, Donald Trump did not have the biggest number of followers of any person on Twitter. And you might have thought that if you weren't on Twitter or were following mm. it. And 40 million people followed him. Just to give a sense of it, 110 million follow Elon Musk, right? So he he was important. But the reason that Donald Trump got such traction was because every single news channel, every single TV network, every single newspaper wrote about his tweets, right? Yeah. So it gave this active distributed effect of everything. So he was very clever because actually the distribution of his tweets was amplified immeasurably by not on the Twitter platform. And I find that kind of fascinating. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree. And it was that sort of, you know, 10 years prior, like what he was doing wouldn't have been picked up as much by the media. And yeah, because it was gaining traction on um, social media and, and not just Twitter, to be fair, it was lots of places. Um, and so I know one of your big, you did an interview in the Times the other day and one of your bits of advice was keep reading and you've referenced it a number of times and the bookshelves behind you similar to mine as well. So I know this is a, a dangerous question to ask, but I just wonder what, you know, sort of the best books that you've read lately are. Well, the best book I read lately was when I was chairing the Women's Prize for Fiction, um, Hamlet and Story that we gave the, the Women's Prize to that's just a wonderful non-fiction story about Shakespeare's wife and the loss of their child, Camden, who later were influenced and inspired by the child's death. But I think, you know, I sound like I'm stuck in another century, but I constantly go back to War and Peace. It's just the most astonishing novel about politics, about democracy, about war, about people, about love, about influence, about power. I mean, it's just quite remarkable. And although... Um, I have never read it, obviously, in the original Russian, and I would love to do so. I always find something when I go down to that book. I, I take, it's my happy place. So War and Peace, top of the list. I've just finished um, reading a book called Looking for Trouble. It was written by the mother of my godmother, a war journalist in the Second World War called Virginia Cowles. She was amazing. She's an American journalist, came to London, became a war reporter, age 21, went to the report on the Spanish Civil War and then covered up to the, um, through the Second World War. She had tea with Mussolini 
she met Hitler. She was astonishing and brave and kind of not as well known as Martha Gellman, but exactly contemporary. And her book is big and long, but it's visceral and incredible and gave me such a strong strength to the Second World War. And more importantly, such a good book to read right now because it just reminds you of how incredibly fragile this patchwork states are that make up Europe how recent these incredibly profound divisions are. It makes me feel even more sick about Brexit, to be honest. But everything to do with Ukraine right now is just in, immensely rewarding reading it and beautifully written. So I very much enjoyed that, Looking for Trouble. Looking for Trouble. All right, well, we'll put it on our uh, on our website and our recommended list. And you, you also mentioned some newsletters as well. I mean, I do think yeah. that sort of the evolution of people becoming their own sort of, brands and putting this stuff out there is like amazing to to see which ones do you subscribe to that are particularly good so many i'm going to go into my inbox so i can tell you i mean i get i think matt Matt levine's um, newsletter about financial stuff in the u.s is absolutely fantastic i've understood more about whether it's subprime mortgages (laughs) derivative swaps or even what's happening at twitter he gets more accurate than anybody i think he's phenomenal i have a just started subscribing to a Substack called It's Not Sustainable by a woman called Tiffany Dark and all Sunday Times journalists about the luxury fashion business and sustainability. It's really interesting. I'm enjoying that very much. I love Benedict Evans' tape newsletter. I always enjoy reading that. Casey Newton writes very well about social media platforms. I am, um, I get, yeah, some little, um, more specific bits from the Guardian and from the New York Times, and the more specific bit, you know, around climate or around technology. So, hundreds. You know, my whole email is just basically newsletters. So, that's what, that's what I like. I like and I like Alan Durahardis's email, email Substack as well about um, power and democracy. I guess really, Tortoise newsletters are good too. Yeah, yeah. And what with everything that you know now. If you were starting your career, so sometimes we call this the, if you were 22 in 2022, what sector, what area would you be exploring? I, mean, I just think it's, although I understand why young people feel overwhelmed right now, and I do not mean to be going to light touch about the very substantial issues that they will face. You know, I waltzed into my first job and was paid a significant amount of money, although I wasn't rolling in cash i could put down a deposit to buy a flat in london right i mean that is out of reach of 99.9.9 percent of young people now so i say this conscious that i have had such a different start and that they are facing into climate catastrophe cost of living crisis much more fragile at work i do still think that it's a time when if you're smart and you're interested and you're curious and you're not scared of technology you'd have to be a technologist i can't code but you're able to ask questions and get into it, then there's never been a better time to be in work because we have a massive gap in the number of people filling even vaguely technical roles. So whether you're interested in AI, whether you're interested in cybersecurity, whether you're interested in, you know, the mess of us, who the hell knows, going to need more and more smart people. And I also do not think that um, the difference in getting good quality work and bad quality work will be your technical capacity because I think the robots are going to do that part, right? The difference will be the human part, the creativity, the empathy, the understanding, the questions, this problem solving, trying to, as I said, ask those right questions, like, are we solving the right problems? So if I was 22 now, I'd be underpinning my working life with absolute fearlessness about the way we're heading and trying to lean into it 
and get this think about the skills that we need or i'd become a tree surgeon because it turns out i've recently had to try and find a tree surgeon impossible there are no tree surgeons apparently it's one of the biggest skills gap that we have so there you go i'd like to see my fearlessness about technology or i'd become a tree surgeon that is uh that is brilliant and as a final question just um we ask inspirational people to pass the mic to uh, another entrepreneur that they've come on that might not have had as much profile etc yet who who should we go and interview you should interview chrisanne jay chrisanne is a social entrepreneur she's a young woman um she was uh, a migrant to the uk had enormous complexities getting a passport to be in this country despite having a right to be here face huge financial challenges in doing so now start an organization called we belong helping other young people belong in the country that they are able to without too much of the hideous barriers that we're putting up against them but she's not just an extraordinary backstory she's an extraordinary person with an extraordinary future story too um and i just really respect chris and incredible network amazing energy tenacity has risen from all of the challenges she's faced in an incredibly impressive way Brilliant. Well, that is a super way to finish. Martha, thank you so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs. It's been uh, it's been great to get your pearls of wisdom about what we think the future will happen to education and skills and so forth. Thank you. I'm glad my voice held out. <laughs> Indeed it did. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.